Broadcasting around the entire world. From Brooklyn, New York. Via Simplecast. And supported by listeners like you. Ethereum, blockchains, crypto, interviews, funding, markets, shilling, panels, promises, lies. Keeping you up to date on everything crypto. Welcome to Thriller, Ethereal Summit. Now here is your host, Carl Gonzalez. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls from around the world. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Thriller Crypto Ethereal Summit Edition. That's right. We're in New York attending the Ethereal Summit. That's right. We got invited to come to New York and learn about the ways Ethereum is helping the entire world organize differently. Or should we say organize in a decentralized, more efficient and democratizing way? Now, ultimately, they believe this world can be built on fundamentally new technology blockchain by which its nature is a fluid, open network innovation. I think I think that future is possible after today. I could really tell that they were really trying to hit home with the decentralized experience. Uh, They gave us food, but they gave us food with crypto. We paid with crypto. Um, They're scanning QR codes and stuff like that. Um, They have a decentralized blockchain art gallery. Um, It's pretty fascinating that um, all this is kind of uh, in this, you know, really historic, beautiful building here in Brooklyn. And they did a really good job with the lighting and the way the conference is going. And I just have nothing but great things to say. And then on top of that, the people are just really nice there. Like, I, I will say this time and time again, the people for Ethereum are just they're just way nicer. <laughs> like the people who work at Consensus are just way nicer people. Uh, the people that are putting together this Ethereum Summit, they're just nicer. Um, they really are. They really are. And I, I don't think that's me like kissing up to them or anything like that. I think that's just the truth. If you ask anybody there, I, I th- actually, I think I even had a conversation with somebody there talking about that very thing. Um, they're just very nice. Uh, another thing I, I would also mention that um, w- we saw or I saw a couple of people that we had ran into at South by. And that was really cool. You know, meeting up with old friends and, old, you know, people that we had, uh, you know, had on the show and meeting them in real person. And then it was just really awesome. Uh, I was really surprised that uh, there was people that I knew there. Um, I didn't see that coming. I was going for, you know, interviews and for uh, reporting back to y'all and uh, really trying to get uh, what this whole thing was about. And I think we got a really good show. So I'm going to start off first and I want to talk about and I think this is very important because I was expecting to go in there, learn about Ethereum. And that happened. That did happen. But before any of that happened, there was somebody by the name of Travis Kling. He's the founder and chief investment officer of Ikea Asset Management. And he did a hell of a job talking about the crypto market in general and how we bottomed out. Check this out.
a little outdated. I, I put this uh, up here on the flight yesterday afternoon. <laughs> uh, can we just give a quick round of applause for the crypto market coming back? Just real fast. It's a, it's a good feeling, right? Um, so just to give you a sense of numerically what that, that looks like, um, BTC is up 63% year to date, ETH up 26 um, and you're, you're 90%, you're, you're basically doubled off the low of, of mid-December. So very firmly have bounced. Um, uh, a lot of that happened on April 1st and subsequently, but the pieces were getting put in place prior to that. So, so broadly, how did we get here? So, so in 2008, we had the beginning of the largest monetary and fiscal policy experiment in human history. Uh, quantitative easing while simultaneously running increasingly larger deficits on top of uh, increasingly untenable debt loads. And that's not hyperbole, that's, that's unequivocal fact. Um, the U.S. printed about $4.5 trillion over that period of time. Uh, the largest central banks globally printed something like $15 trillion. That's the largest monetary experiment in human history. And then, and then in 2017, the Fed tried to start ending the largest monetary experiment in human history uh, with, with quantitative tightening. And in 2018, risk assets around the world started uh, not liking that very much at all. Um, crypto was actually the first to go, uh, which makes sense because it's sort of the furthest out on, on the risk spectrum. And then one asset class after another started falling until by the end of 2018, uh, you had more asset classes globally uh, with negative returns in a year than you've ever had ever. Um, specifically in Q4-18, you had this sort of like dumpster fire for risk assets. Everything was tanking. Uh, Steve Mnuchin calling the plunge protection team from Cabo on Christmas Eve. Um, and uh, the market, uh, if you pay attention to what the Fed does, uh, uh, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, used this, this term in, in mid-December about how balance sheet was on autopilot, the balance sheet roll-off and, and tightening. And the market really, really didn't like that term, autopilot. And you know who else didn't like that term? Donald Trump didn't like that term. So Donald Trump started talking shit on Twitter to the chairman of the Fed, and, and, and the crazy thing about it was, was that it, it actually worked. Um, so on January 30th, the Fed capitulated, and they went from this stance of, of uh, tightening and balance sheet roll-off and um, uh, pushing up interest rates further, complete uh, like turnaround to dovishness and um, accommodation by any means necessary and sort of all future tightening uh, going on pause. That's, that's a big deal. And then on March 10th, Jay Powell went on 60 Minutes and he confirmed it. And then on March 26th, they had another FOMC meeting and they were even more dovish. And, and, then, and then because the United States did it, then, um, let's see here. Because the United States did it, then all the other central banks globally could fall in line. The ECB, the BOJ, the PBOC, Reserve Bank of Australia. Two days ago, uh, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand cut interest rates. 
uh, in case you're wondering how quantitative tightening is going. Uh, first, first large global economy to do so in 2019. And, and the punchline is, is like, so the whole world's monetary policy shifted over the last couple months from trying to end the largest monetary experiment in human history to having no desire to try and end that. That's really important as a backdrop for crypto assets. Um, specifically for, for Bitcoin, crypto is definitely a risk asset, but, but Bitcoin is a, is a risk asset with a specific set of investment characteristics that become increasingly more attractive the more irresponsible monetary and fiscal policy becomes. It's, it's a hedge against that. It's an insurance policy against that. So I've talked about this a lot uh, in public, and, and we're not going to stop banging this drum. Current central bank actions are deeply bullish for a non-sovereign hard cap supply, global, immutable, decentralized digital store of value to gain mass adoption. There's a good chance this crypto bear market is over, and there's a good chance that J-PAL put the bottom in. So, so I wrote that. I write this like monthly update letter that goes out to our investors and potential investors. It goes out the first of every month, and 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 that statement was was in that letter, and uh, it was like four hours before BTC went up 25%. Not saying I caused that, just saying it was good timing. Uh, so, so that was kind of broadly how, how we got here. Specifically, how do we get here? So, so this is kind of how we see things year to date um, leading up to April 1st. So Tron rallied more than 80% in January on the back of this BitTorrent thing. Uh, that peaked in January 10th, the day of the airdrop, and then it dumped 35% in the following four days. ETH pumped twice, right? First on the Constantinople hard fork, and then they had to push it off, and so it kind of dipped, and then it pumped again like that. Um, so you had that going on in kind of the January, February time frame. And then you had BNB that was uh, uh, starting this, uh, 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 like, like right when, when Tron started collapsing, then BNB started pumping. And then CZ like goes on this relentless value sort of creating campaign and he's doing all these fiat uh, on-ramps in Argentina and Australia, and then he's got Launchpad and um, you know, BNB as a token has performed really well year to date. And then from, from the signals that we saw, especially with hindsight, um, February 8th, it's, it's fair to say that everything changed on February 8th with this crypto market. And that emanated from Litecoin pumping 30% in a day. It was the largest uh, stop run on Litecoin in, in BitMEX history. It, it came on this like really loose kind of news of Charlie Lee talking about implementing Mimblewimble, which is like pretty soft in terms of a catalyst. And, um, uh, and, then, and then seemingly like every time, you know, Litecoin would start kind of dipping uh, and it looked like it was starting to fade away, then you'd see this, this bump up again on like no news. And, and that started February 8th and continued through uh, the end of February and into March. And then seemingly with permission from and in conjunction with Litecoin leading the way, you had these small cap cryptos that started pumping. And some of them were pumping on uh, like event-driven catalysts, like Engine or Theta. Some of them were kind of pumping on not much of anything, but they were pumping and then they were actually kind of maintaining a decent amount of that pump instead of these like very quick, like, you know, like the true pump and dumps, like in a couple days. And so that was, that was very different in terms of um, uh, showing a risk tolerance that market participants were taking at the time. And then on April 1st, we had fireworks, and specifically, what do fireworks look like? Fireworks look like $480 million of BitMEX liquidations in two hours. And just like that, the bottom was in for crypto. Legitimacy of the Q1 rally. So 
I kind of like to compare BNB um, to Litecoin in this situation. So, so in our opinion, far and away, the Q1 pump that had the most sort of fundamental legitimacy to it was, was Binance. Um, he's doing a great job adding value, driving value, but he's doing it in his own unique way. I any Launchpad IEO participants in the room right now? Maybe not. Okay, but people have probably been paying attention to it. And, and what CZ's doing is um, he's created this little mini 2017 ICO mania, but he's doing it in, in his way because he's got all his market makers that are supporting the books of these IEOs. So he's entered this social contract with IEO investors, and he's basically said, like, if you do, and you can only do 1500 bucks, so it's not like even an institutional product, but if you, if you do a little bit, I'm going to make sure you make like two, three, four times your money. And you get to make it in this kind of fun, gamey, gambly way that like investors in that part of the world really enjoy. Um, and then on the other hand, you have Litecoin. And Litecoin is a heavily manipulated crypto and it has very little fundamental value. So the number of developers committing to the Lighthub, Git, uh, Litecoin GitHub has gone from 40 and 17 to about three currently. And, and importantly, only 78 addresses hold at least $10 million worth of Litecoin. Um, 1,011 addresses hold more than $10 million worth of BTC. Only 324 addresses hold a million dollars worth of, worth of Litecoin. So it's, it, it, because of that reason, like just think about like a 78-person Telegram chat, and it's every dude in the world that owns 10 million bucks worth of Litecoin. Those guys can get together and they can make Litecoin do some things. Um, it's also uh, shorting Litecoin at large scale as opposed to ETH and BTC, which have true two-way price discovery. You, you can't short Litecoin in size very well. So, so also, another thing that we pay a lot of attention to is, is all the wash trading that happens in crypto, which folks in this room are probably pretty familiar with. And, and when you look at the historical volume profiles, it, it supports this, this thesis of, of increased wash trading that kicked off on February 8th. And that was likely in response to these offsides, long, long short positioning on, on BitMEX and, and Litecoin. And if you just kind of go back and look at the chart, it's pretty apparent that like some switches were flipped on in February 8th. So, so how does all that happen? So I'm gonna introduce this concept called the risky whale. We believe a relatively small number of highly sophisticated, well-capitalized, highly risk-tolerant market participants have been walking this crypto market higher over the sort of seven weeks from, from uh, February through March, and then that was punctuated with these April 1st fireworks. And if anybody's like an active trader in here, maybe you've heard of this guy Wickoff. He wrote um, books about the stock market in the early 1900s. Um, Wickoff has this guy called uh, the composite operator that he talks about. And the risky whale is, is uh, crypto's own version of the composite operator. So why have these risky whales been willing to initiate these market manipulations over the last seven weeks going through, through um, February and March leading up to the April 1st fireworks? Because after all, if these trades go against them, they stand to lose millions of dollars. Well, we believe it's because the risky whales uh, are aware of a bid in BTC that keeps the entire market afloat. Um, we know anecdotally of crypto funds that were buying BTC for a long-term hold in the December, January, February timeframe. Fidelity has assumedly been buying some amount of BTC and is assumedly going to be continuing buying more. Um, and then uh, anecdotally, we've heard of multiple macro hedge funds that have been buying Bitcoin as it relates to uh, uh, what central banks and, and governments are doing globally as a hedge. And so sophisticated crypto investors can see that bid through on-exchange analysis and on-chain analysis and conversations with OTC desks. 
And it was apparent throughout Q1 from the relatively muted price action in BTC. Remember, BTC wasn't leading this market. It was Tron and it was Litecoin and it was a bunch of small cap cryptos. But, but it's pretty apparent that, that that bid was there, but that the bid was, was price sensitive over that period of time. But without that sort of safety net, um, uh, risky whales couldn't have the confidence that the bottom wasn't going to fall out from underneath them. And uh, because they did have that safety net, then they can start initiating this, uh, this chicanery, uh, which is m my euphemism for uh, another term. But uh, uh, that started in, in Litecoin and in small cap cryptos. So I was pretty amazed with how much in-depth Travis went into the entire Q1, uh, Q2 of the industry, uh, of the markets. And we follow this. I follow this. Y'all follow this. We follow this every other day with a podcast or with a news headline at crypto.com, just anything, right? And the fact that he was pulling in numbers and he knew about April Bulls Day and uh, just all these different aspects. And then he brought in his own kind of spin to it, which I really uh, think that he's right on the nose with, uh, you know, driven by network effect is what he used uh, when he was talking about Bitcoin. We always knew that. We always knew it was a network effect. We just didn't have somebody who was from that side that could kind of tell us what we're seeing here and what we know is factual. It is these things that we can, uh, we think that they're driven, but we just don't know because we're not previous investors or we don't, we're not a finance person, right? So it's really interesting to see a lot of these people come in this space and give their two cents on it. And Travis did a tremendous job out there today. Uh, another, another speaking that was just really just off the chain was the layer one and layer two debate and how settlements will work in the future and how they're currently working now. It was fascinating, to say the least, to hear two different people talk about how important layer two is and then another person saying that it's not that important and we can live with what we have right now. So check this out. This is with Tushar Jain, co-founder and managing partner of Multicoin Capital, Jing Lan Wang, co-founder of Plasma Group, Jack O'Hellion, founder and CEO of Scale Labs, Amin Soleimani, founder and CEO of Spank Chain, and founding member of Mulark Dow. Of course, this was moderated by Tanya Mikkel, host of Crypto Craze on Cheddar. Check this out. So that to me is like very different than a year ago where you showed up, you built something on Ethereum and you thought, okay, what am I gonna append to this so that it's faster and it just costs less? And mainly so it costs less because it's really, really expensive. Now people are actually coming and they're looking at minting and growing assets in layer two and then thinking about when and how they move them over. So I think it's already happening. And again, we're, we're building and supporting and investing in these things, but our effective cu customers or partners will drive that evolution. I think it's already started. One of the most challenging things about minting tokens on layer two uh, or, or just having assets on layer two in general is the, the trade-off is interoperability, right? Like if I have a smart contract on the Ethereum mainnet and now I have tokens on layer two, uh, I have to move those tokens back onto the Ethereum mainnet. Let's say Uniswap, you wanna trade these tokens, right? So, so now I have to move them back and then do, do the transaction on the smart contract and then if I wanna bring those assets back to 
the layer two, I have to then move them back, right? So, so long as the, the realm of things that you want to interact with is nearby, uh, then you're fine. Right? If you're minting a token and it's meant to mostly be transacted within that layer two, that you know, small, I almost kind of want to call these things shards now. It's like you have the Ethereum shards and you have the other things, and it's all blockchains you know, all the way down. So. <clears throat> but that's, that's what you're thinking about as a, as a developer, as a user. Um, yeah. Well, I also think that uh, you can address that potentially by having your contract live on multiple layer two chains. Right? There's, there's no reason that the Uniswap contract, for, to use your example, needs to only live on the Ethereum mainnet. You can go deploy that on a scale chain, for example, and have that live on the same scale chain that you can have the same, you can have a, you can have DAI that's been moved on to that chain, and you can have maybe, you know, some shares um, of Augur markets that are trading on that chain. Uh, so I agree that uh, it, it does present a challenge for layer two, but I think that because of the huge scalability advantages that Layer 2 has, uh, I mean, you can go recreate the entire Ethereum state machine in there in every Layer 2 shard if you want to and solve this problem. It wouldn't solve it exactly, though. And because you can copy state, but you can't copy liquidity, right? So the reason, yeah. the reason that somebody might want to use Uniswap is because it has all the money in there, it has the largest liquidity pool, it offers the best trading price. If I want to place a larger order, I'm going to get the least slippage when I use Uniswap uh, on mainnet, assuming that has the best liquidity uh, henceforth. Um, if, if I have a, a copy of the Uniswap on some layer two chain, it's going to have less liquidity. If I want to place a trade, I'm going to get a potentially worse price. So I'm going to sort of think about this trade-off when I'm like, hmm, do I want this to be done right now or do I want to get the best price? Uh, what, when I decide how I want to execute this transaction. And as a DAP developer, I sort of will either make this decision for my users or will present them the option of doing the slow, but, you know, uh, less expensive if it's a large trade, but, or the fast, but, uh, wait. Yeah, yeah, less expensive in terms of slippage uh, because of liquidity, so. Uh, because of these various trade-offs, are there standards that we should be creating or that you would like to see be created or certain standard setting bodies around the development of layer two? That's a really interesting question because I think that's, that's another one of the challenges with building on layer two is that the end wallets or the, the browsers that the users are using need to know where to point, right? Like right now, if you're using MetaMask, MetaMask is pointing to the Ethereum mainnet. That's really easy. You don't need any configuration uh, on the user side to say, well, which network should I point to? Um, but one of the challenges that developers will have uh, building on layer two will be, well, how do I say where this chain lives and then make sure to communicate that to the user so that the user is interacting with the right layer two chain? So I think some standards around communicating that will be essential to building that successfully. Though that sounds like a very achievable goal. Yeah, and, and I think we're, progress is being made there already. So, uh, you know, we need a Web3 connect on layer two, and if you have to wait for it to come from the mainnet, then you don't get any speed <laughs> or cost savings. Uh, so, um, I'm seeing some really phenomenal development with getting those Web3 data points, and just, you know, users shouldn't have to deal with all this complexity. They need to just 
show up, use an application, leverage money, and not necessarily need to manage an entirely different workflow, manage where their, uh, their IP address is pointing, um, uh, and you know, they just should use apps. And I, you know, I'm seeing some really cool things happening on the wallet side and, uh, and people building Web3 connectors. So. Um, is the success of Ethereum riding on the success of Layer 2? Absolutely. Uh, I think that if Layer 2 does not work, Ethereum will not work. Uh, and, and I believe that with pretty high conviction, just because Ethereum is pretty far behind on Layer 1 development. I mean, let's, fa let's face facts. Uh, there are other Layer 1 chains out there that outperform Ethereum um, in, in all the dimensions. And so I think if we expect Ethereum to win the smart contract platform wars, then I think we need Layer 2 to succeed. Otherwise, Ethereum won't win, and one of the other layer one chains will. Yeah, and I, I'll maybe add a different perspective there that I think Ethereum's already in a really amazing place. A proof of stable, proof of work chain that is, you know, in the state it's in today is amazing. And I think all the development, you look at what's happening with state channels and plasma and side chains and elastic side chains, there's so much happening that today developers can plug in and build an amazing experience with proven security. And so I think all of these other networks that are launching haven't had their hack yet. And if you're a developer, you have to say, okay, should I go with Ethereum? I know there's some speed trade-offs and some costs uh, issues, but there's a great, uh, there's a plethora of layer two options. And so I already think we're in a, a really phenomenal place. And in the next six months, you're gonna see the results. Um, there's 10 amazing projects already building on scale. I know the other platforms have some really, really great traction. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I think we're already where we need to be in a lot of ways in, with Ethereum. Uh, yeah, to address Tushar's point about Ethereum needing layer two to win, I'm like, I, th I think there's a little bit of nuance there and the nuance is like, uh, if Ethereum doesn't get layer two and everyone else does, uh, that would be really bad. Um, if everyone, if it's just like all the layer ones against each other, that's like less bad uh, because Ethereum is in a really great spot in terms of uh, making the right trade-offs that maybe I prefer as a developer, like EOS might be faster, but easier to revert transactions, more centralized, da-da-da, whereas Ethereum is more decentralized. Um, maybe it's a little bit slower, you know, I, I can sort of live with that. And, and, and there's also a specific category of applications that doesn't really care about throughput, right? Like Uniswap, you pool liquidity, anybody can trade against it. You're, you're trading against an automated market maker that does the math and, and you can trade any amount of money in a single transaction. Uh, you, like throughput is sort of irrelevant. Um, s same with a lot of uh, DAO infrastructure. Like we just launched the, uh, the Moloch DAO a couple months ago. It will have a million dollars in it soon. Vitalik and Joe just joined. Like, you know, if the transactions, if the votes like completed in like one or two seconds or something, that would be really cool. But it's it's also really important to everybody that's pooled money in this thing that one, it can't be stopped, uh, and and two, if anybody like tried to remove it from the chain, they would literally have to hard fork, uh, and you know, every single person running the node would have to hard fork and move. So, so being ungovernable is also, I would consider, an advantage. Um, yeah, and then, and then there's the other part, which is that like a lot of the interoperability uh, platforms that are posing as layer ones are actually layer twos. 
uh, because what does it mean to be an interoperability platform uh, if, if you're not connecting things? Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess my assumption of like what's about to happen is just that Ethereum's gonna eat everything and like all of the great layer two tech will be implemented in some form or another for Ethereum. So it'll sort of uh, wash away any other advantages that other layer twos might give to, or, or, you know, have and then they'll just, it, you, you'll get the benefits of having the best layer one on Ethereum as well as all of the best layer two tools. So I actually, I disagree with you on this. And what I disagree with is that Ethereum has the best layer one. Um, I think that Ethereum- Who does? Huh? Who does? Uh, I think that there's a lot of candidates out there. Who's um, your favorite? My favorite is one called Solana. Uh, does which, it have users? No, it's testnet right now. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> How, how big are your Solano bags? Game's not over yet. But it, it, hear me out, right? It, it, I think that Ethereum doesn't necessarily have the best layer one, but it has the best layer two community. And the reason is that transitioning over to uh, Ethereum 2.0 is going to be very complex. It's going to take a long time. And I think that Ethereum needs layer two to succeed as a stopgap. Because you're right, everyone's building on Ethereum today. But the current developers that are building on blockchains in general, are just, it's a very small amount. So yes, the market share today is very dominated by Ethereum, but unless the Ethereum ecosystem is able to provide the solutions that the new developers coming into the industry want, then I think there will, it will have a lot of difficulty succeeding. And in order to do that, I think it really needs layer two, because the, the layer one development is just so slow and has all of the, the backwards compatibility to maintain. Jing, do you want to introduce yourself and give yeah. your layer two thesis, I guess? Hello, hello. Um, I'm Jing. I work at Plasma Group, which is a layer two scaling solution for Ethereum, um, well, Plasma is. And um, to Tushar's point, like, yeah, Ethereum does need layer two, but um, ETH 2.0 and Plasma are not really the same thing. ETH 2.0 is trying to scale layer one, the core protocol, AKA scale the amount of trusted com computation possible. But layer two is scaling the efficient usage of that computation. Um, and we don't really have, like we haven't achieved critical mass of users. So do we like, we have layer two already, it works, it's in production. Do we really need ETH 2.0 to exist right now? I think it's fine for people to be working on it. It's fine for it to take a long time. Um, it's a large spec, like you should implement it well. Um, but layer two does exist for Ethereum. And speaking to your point about these like other competing blockchains, part of what makes a blockchain like a leading blockchain is the network effects that it amasses. And that's, you know, I think that Bitcoin will be a king forever and I think that Ethereum will be too. Because there's just this huge time advantage of massive communities who are dedicated to improving these chains. Whenever we're talking about anything in, in crypto land or in blockchain, I, I like to substitute the word value with security. Um, and, and the reason for that is blockchains are only as secure as they are valuable. That's, that's literally how the whole system works. That was Satoshi's big uh, innovation was the game theoretic incentives that hold the, the whole system together. And so, you know, whether you're talking about a proof of work system or a proof of stake system, blockchains are only as valuable or as secure as they are valuable. 
and so I, I think this question of value capture um, at layer one versus layer two is really interesting because it, it really highlights that um, trade-off that exists between those two, right? Uh, I think it intuitively makes sense that layer one should be more secure and more valuable than any given layer two chain just because layer one is pooling the security budget of everything that lives on layer one, including the native contracts that are on layer one, as well as all of the layer two chains all pool their security down to layer one. Um, and so I think layer one should capture most of that value. However, uh, you know, uh, while each layer two chain might have less security, it's possible that if you can pool security across various layer two chains, that the layer two chains can also provide adequate security guarantees that maybe you never even need to touch layer one, right? And, and I, something that we're gonna be keeping a very close eye on um, as layer two platforms launch and gain tr a, a lot of adoption, which we think that they almost certainly will, um, is that trade-off between value capture at layer one versus layer two, because if you see too much activity happening at layer two as compared to layer one, well then what happens when there's a reorg at the base layer um, and how does that affect layer two? Like we, we have theories, but we don't know yet. Um, and so I, I think this is gonna be one of the most interesting topics to watch in the, in the Ethereum ecosystem for the next probably 12 to 24 months. So, yeah, I, I don't think the value that layer one can capture has been exhausted. Uh, I think there's a lot more value to be had. I think the announcement that I'm waiting for is like for the first small nation to announce that they're issuing a central bank digital currency on Ethereum, uh, maybe operating their own layer two, you know, plasma chain to manage transactions within their own country. Taxes maybe are automated. Uh, it provides the central bankers a lot more control over the uh, providing data. They could do real-time monetary policy. This is like very unexplored. Like when we're even talking about blockchain value proposition, like this is sort of the ultimate bull case. Uh, it's like we haven't seen anything yet, right? Um, when, when like political dissidents start using DAOs to like organize, uh, that's when things start to get interesting. Um, it, it, when, when I think about how that world translates into you know layer one versus layer two value capture, I'm, I'm sort of more bullish on layer twos that own end user relationships. Uh, it's not so much like okay, I have this layer one platform. What this gives me is this pooled security, as Tushar said. Okay, great. So what does this layer two platform give me? It's like well, I'm, it's, it's, I'm not getting any security from it, so why would I pay you for that? Uh, I might be getting some censorship resistance out of it, but like I could probably you know, have a network that, that does that itself. So it's like, at that point, what it becomes is the relationship with the user that, that is actually transacting, that is uh, you know, living or you know, economically operating on that chain. Uh, and so I think you know, if a government moves to uh, the... the Ethereum blockchain and issues its own plasma chain, like they're going to get most of the value from layer their layer two, right? It's not going to go to some other platform. Um, if uh, you know when Spank Chain operates our payment channels, we're the ones who own the, that end user relationship, and like that's where we, we are actually able to own the value from that layer two system. So that's my thoughts. Um, I think value capture means a lot of different things, and I think we're all answering the question in a little bit of a different way. 
but I think that this like really clear distinction that people are trying to draw between layer one and layer two, as though there are only two layers, is not really accurate. And there are, all, there are already multiple layers in the blockchain. Like Solidity compiles down to EVM. That's you know, a layer of abstraction there. Um, with Plasma, at least, Plasma is a layer that just takes any arbitrary data, um, maybe like thousands of transactions processed off-chain, and sends a commitment to the Ethereum blockchain. So you can kind of think of, at least within the context of Plasma, scaling Ethereum as uh, making a really big courthouse. And just in the same way that when you and I make a business agreement or a contract, we don't go to the courthouse every single time we create an agreement. We only go to the courthouse when we want to resolve a dispute. That's the same way that Plasma uses the Ethereum main chain. So the security of knowing that the law will be upheld, the guarantee of that in layer two Plasma is the same as in layer one Ethereum. Um, what layer two is used for is the creation of all these contracts and you only move off of layer two when something goes wrong and you have to take it back to the main chain. What are we looking at for the rest of the year then if uh, we take the assumption that the success of Ethereum does ride on the future of Layer 2. Uh, for the rest of 2019, what are the biggest challenges slash opportunities to get through? So, uh, I'm biased remarks, here. I mean, by the way. scale, we're launching our mainnet this year. So, we've, you know, we're going to have, it's working, right? Uh, the DevNet's been up for a long time, and that's what I'm excited about. So, Q3, uh, you'll see, uh, you know, Ethereum dApps moving, sub-second finality, 2,000 uh, transactions per second, full state uh, smart contracts execution, and I'm also excited about what's, what's happening with Plasma and state channels. I think there's a lot of cool stuff going on. Uh, so I'm very excited for the scale uh, launch as well and, and several other um, launches coming this year. I think something that, that I'm keeping my eye on is the ratio of transactions that are happening at layer two uh, whether it's a scale chain or a plasma chain or you know some other type of uh, maybe loom network, et cetera, uh, how many transactions are happening at layer two versus layer one on Ethereum? And then also the total value of transactions that are happening at layer two versus layer one on Ethereum. And uh, you know a, a thesis that I have is we should see more transactions both in number and in value on layer two than on layer one by the end of the year. Um, and if we see that happen, I think that will increase my conviction in Ethereum actually winning. Um, whereas if we, if we see that not happen, we see that you know, people just stick to layer one on Ethereum and, and people are uncomfortable going over to layer two, then I think that decreases the chances that Ethereum will be the ultimate winner. And, and it increases the chances of Solana? Or something else. Right. Uh, so... Yeah, uh, what will happen this year? Um, a bunch of stuff will launch. Uh, so Connext has been working with Counterfactual. They have a payment channel hub. It's in production. You can use it today. If you want to have rapid payments, Ujo Music just integrated it for streaming payments. Um, Plasma stuff, I'll, I'll leave to, to Jing. Um, yeah, that, they're, they're also working with Counterfactual, uh, which is going to launch their client stuff. And, and I think uh, mostly wallet integrations uh, will happen. I know that there's teams working with MetaMask to allow for more easy access of end users to Layer 2. Um, that's like exactly the type of thing that you'll need to, to make it uh, seamless 
to move your coins around and then be able to execute those transactions off-chain? Um, one of the main like research hurdles that we surpassed this year with Plasma was the creation of generalized Plasma, where previously on uh, layer two chains, um, you could mainly just do simple sends. So I send you money. Um, but we couldn't have a complex payment logic. And what generalized Plasma allows is for a type of contract called predicate contracts, which essentially allows for some limited subset of what you can do with an Ethereum smart contract. So you like kind of have smart contracts on layer two, which is pretty dope because you don't have to pay the same fees as you do on layer one. But I don't think that's um, the main point here. Like you guys have all just heard a bunch of dope updates from all four of us. And there's this meme that Ethereum is failing and all these competitors are going to take over Ethereum because it doesn't scale. But like it does fucking scale and it scales today and all of this shit is working in production. And all these other chains are really doing is that they're marketing harder and they're memeing harder. They raise their billions in ICO money and they're like, oh yeah, we're going to take over Ethereum with our five daily active users. No, that's such BS. And so like if anyone as part of the community can really do anything to help Ethereum move along, it's meme harder. Like tweet about it. Tell your friends. Ethereum does scale. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Yeah, so that was Jinglan, and she just killed it up there. Um, yeah, she did a magnificent job. Uh, and then you kind of heard both sides, right? You heard Amin from Spank Chain talk about how he's totally comfortable with where they're at with Layer 1. Then you heard uh, somebody uh, f like Tushar from Multicoin Capital, and he was very much like, Layer 2, if it doesn't work, <laughs> then all hell is going to break loose. But I think what you're seeing there, and I, I deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis at work, like you have people that understand the technology part of things, and then you have somebody that understands like the... Uh, you know, money side of things. And sometimes those two, uh, you know, brains can't get quite together. But if they can kind of see a trajectory, uh, and if usually if they trust in those people who are working on the technology firsthand, uh, they usually end up being right. <laughs> so I will just say on that kind of um, on that kind of back and forth, I'm going to side with Amin, just because I, I know what he's saying. Like, it just totally makes sense. Okay, so the last piece I want to leave you with is probably one of the most important pieces. Uh, we we know, and I'm going to say this right off the bat, like everybody knows that Bitcoin is probably the most decentralized platform that's out there. No one's debating that. Um, no one's saying that. And like no one is ever going to call Bitcoin out for not being too decentralized. That's never going to happen. I mean, people try, but it's usually not true, right? Um, so I will say that Ethereum, when it comes to decentralization, it's definitely number two. It's not 100%, but we know that as time grows on, it'll get there. It'll eventually get there. So what this next panel was about was how we learn to stop worrying and love the mainnet. And this is directly uh, kind of pointed at people that believe private blockchain is a future and there's nothing wrong with private blockchain you know there was microsoft was there promoting azure and there's other um deloitte was there there's other different big companies there that were promoting um all sorts of products right and one of the things that uh, uh somebody like myself will understand is that you know, most of these companies um, already have Microsoft built in or they're already running off of Azure with their AD or Office 365. Like this is all stuff that they already have built in inside their technology stack. So 
eventually, if they're going to move to blockchain as a database or whatever they're going to do, of course, they're going to stay within that Azure ecosystem. Of course, they're going to run a private database. Of course, they're going to do all these things. They're going to keep it because it's just more easier. <laughs> it's just easier and it's just uh, a lot faster and quicker and e uh, tools, learning, material, everything is there on the platform and it's just a easier to roll out. So what Paul Brody, head of blockchain at Ernst & Young, and John Wolpert, head of Web3 Studio at Consensus, they were talking about how essentially this private blockchain that all these big businesses want is no longer needed because they can start trusting the mainnet and they can start making or saving money. Check this out. You know, we came to the conclusion fairly quickly, and it doesn't take a lot, a lot of time to think about this, that... Um, there are several things that need to happen in order for enterprises to feel comfortable doing business transactions on public blockchains, right? The first is you've got to move to tokenization. Believe it or not, most enterprise solutions out there, and I'm not going to name names, they are notarization solutions. Like, if you want to timestamp a PDF, can I just recommend Dropbox? It's cheaper, <laughs> right? Uh, so, so notarization uh, has to shift to tokenization. Um, within tokenization, you've got to have fiat currency tokens. And I'm not anti-cryptocurrency, but our clients, which are large corporations, transact in fiat currency, yeah. right? Uh, it, it needs to be regulatory compliant. And most importantly, the, the deal killer for any enterprise is privacy. If on the mainnet, I can use analytics or other tools to figure out what you're buying, how much you're paying for it, where it's coming from, I'm not going to get on board. Right? No way. So we looked around and we realized that if we want enterprises to use the public mainnet, they must have privacy. And so Nightfall is really the second generation of our zero-knowledge proof-based private tokens. Uh, we, we launched the first version uh, at DevCon last year. All running on the mainnet. Yes, all running on the mainnet. And uh, we spent the last six months basically driving the transaction costs down, the gas consumption costs down. So when we launched this last year, it cost $100 in gas to do a ZKP transaction. I know what you're thinking, it's a bargain, right? Uh, but probably a bit of a non-starter. We are now down to about $5 in gas consumption for a ZKP transaction. Uh, and um, our goal is to get down to probably under 50 cents. But we also realize, and, and this is the issue behind Nightfall, and that's why it's called Nightfall and not EY Nightfall, is that if we want this to happen, we cannot keep it for ourselves. We need to make it public. And so uh, when we release Nightfall, which will be uh, in about 10 days, it will be open source and public domain. No license, no gotchas, no special terms and conditions, 100% public domain. Uh, Apache 2 or MIT license? No, no, no license. Public domain. Oh. We relinquish all ownership of Nightfall. <laughs> Look at all the games that are being played with open source licenses now. There's a very simple way to fix that. Just let everybody use it. You know, I, I'm going to take that back to my team today. We'll talk about my team in a minute. But I, I'm going to take my, that back to my team and say, you know what, we thought Apache 2 was good. We got to do what Paul's doing. So good on you. All right. Um, so that's Nightfall. Anything else you want to say about it? So uh, Nightfall is kind of one part of a bunch of stuff that we are doing. If you, if you think about how enterprises operate, right, what happens is, and I have a colleague, this is, by the way, this is accounted humor, so you may not find it funny. I find it funny now because I've been at EY for four years. But one of my colleagues, she says, she says um, 
the value proposition of working with the big four is that you're less likely to go to prison. <laughs> and, uh, and she's right. You know, at the end of the day, large enterprises, if we want to kind of do transformation at scale, large enterprises must be involved, right? That is kind of what, what drives all of this process. That's what, you know, the huge amounts of assets are. Large enterprises are risk averse. So nightfall means private transactions, but also we need to be able to show them we can audit their transactions, that we can prove to regulators that they have been complying with the law. Um, and we, we've got a couple of other cool technologies that we're, we're not completely open sourcing, so it's a, hopefully a little bit of a freemium model, but we have a cool technology we built called DiePack, which allows you to tag stolen tokens and issue replacements. Because um, I think, you know, enterprise CFOs, they are terrified of, of like, wallet hacks and thefts. So uh, we are trying piece by piece with business applications, audit tools, security systems to lay a foundation where CFOs and CEOs and general counsels of large, very conservative clients can say to each other, okay, we can do this on the mainnet, right? And, and we even published, like, a TCO calculator to show that at $5 a transaction, you need to do more than 50,000 transactions a year to be cost-effective for a private blockchain. And our goal is to get down to 50 cents by the end of this year. And at that point, you need to do something in the range of two or 300,000 transactions, which means that for most companies, by the end of this year, doing business on a public blockchain will be cheaper <laughs> than doing it on a private blockchain. That's fantastic. Well done. Um, so, I mean, that's a bit, I, I don't know, it, it's, it's late in the day, but if you're not getting what the implications of that are, um, you know, read up. Uh, it's a big deal. And, yeah, how long has Ernst & Young been in business? I mean, do you I think we've been know? around for about 250 years. Yeah, so not a fly-by-night company, would you say? Oh, no, no, definitely yeah. not. So, uh, so if Ernst & if, if the main net is good enough for Ernst & Young, maybe it's good enough for Caterpillar and... <laughs> you know, that, that, is, that is my hope, right? So we, we have a couple of big strategic partners that we go to market with, right? Microsoft and SAP. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about sort of the warm fuzzy, you, you show up at the, the, the CEO or the CIO of a large enterprise and you say, hi, we're, your, we're an audit firm and we are here with the world's largest enterprise software company and the world's largest hosting and infrastructure company and we're telling you that the main net is not scary, right? Because we had, I'll tell you a great story. About two and a half years ago, we had a blockchain-based procurement system ready to go for a really big CPG company, and they loved it. We're on the phone, we're reviewing the final kind of review of the proof of concept, and our client's like, Paul, this is amazing. You know, we think if we deploy this, we can save like $200 million a year. Um, our, our, our security people are very satisfied with this. Um, we think it's going to be very powerful, and we are not deploying it. <laughs> I had exactly the same experience at IBM. And I was like, okay, okay. Um, I was writing the press release in my head, and, and I was like, wait a minute, can you just play that back to me? And the, the answer really came back as, blockchain new scary. We don't want to go first. Yes, right. And so, as, as, as we're on memory lane, that's where we're going to go next. So there's a funny story here, a, big, a, a larger funny story, and it's going to come to the punchline of this whole conversation. Um, so, four year, five years ago almost... Um, you were on stage at, uh, at uh, CES. Uh, yeah, CES with Samsung with a cool uh, 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 demo of uh, Ethereum running on a... Ethereum Alpha running on 
uh, Samsung refrigerators and washing machines. It's called ADEPT, right? Yes. Autonomous, decentralized, peer-to-peer -peer telemetry. And you made the brilliant mistake of talking to the press about it. Uh, I was told, do not say the word Bitcoin. And because I am very well blockchain, behaved, right? I, I may have said the word Bitcoin several times in addition to blockchain. And, and now you're at Ernst Young. Yes, that it's, worked out well for me. Uh, <laughs> so, well, so the, 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 not to make, you know, to make light of this, but it, you know, it, it turned out well for you. But four or five months later, I show up. I know. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, I was in kind of the pit of despair, right? <laughs> and and I, I had to leave IBM to, to pursue this, this kind of dream, which, which, and EY wasn't completely bought into it yet at the time. And, and well, to have we, been told just a few months ago, like, blockchain, like, stop talking about it, don't do this, and then to turn around and be like, IBM's all over blockchain, and, and you're not part of it, so good luck with that, right? I just, I, yeah, I was no, very yeah. jealous. Right, and, and rightly so. Um, but yeah, the, the problem was that you, you said it a little bit too early, and we confused customers, right? So you have banking executives calling the chairman, and, and that's a problem, right? Four or five months later, we had laid the foundation, and we all said, blockchain's not Bitcoin, right? And, every, and all, everybody started uh, repeating that, and suddenly, I could say it all day long because the chairman was saying it, right? And so that turned the page, right? Uh, we went from there to Fabric, and an enterprise blockchain. And I was the head of pro global head of products for that whole thing. And then Joe Lubin called and said, hey, do you really want to work on that? Or do you want to build real applications on the next internet? And uh, that was an easy answer for me. So I went from one but side to this. How was it an easy answer? You had, you had the world's largest tech company. I mean, still, when I go to clients, they're like, I've had clients literally say, so are there blockchains other than Hyperledger? Right. I know you all think like that's a crazy question, but you are not an IT executive in a Fortune 500 company. You know, the, the, the degree to which large enterprises talk to each other is, is, is very intense, right? And, and we have, we've had to explain, and, and I certainly would have been jealous. I don't think it would have been an easy choice for me. Well, the, the hardest choice for, for me was the end of the summer of 2015, just a few months after all of this, right? Um, where we were working on Ethereum and really wanted to do Ethereum. We loved Ethereum. My whole team did. But we were very focused on confidentiality and privacy, which are two different things, right? Privacy is, to me, where the, you know, whether or not you can see the transaction, right? Is it on your ledger? And confidentiality is whether or not you're, you can decompile and interrogate the business logic of the smart contract. Those are two different problems. A lot of times they're confused. So these are the things that we were worried about. And to solve those problems that were equally as hard as scaling and, and the things that you know, the team is working on, and we didn't want to distract. So we said, oh, let's build another thing and learn how to do the things that we care about, and then we'll merge it all back together. Unfortunately, you know, people get excited about their own things, and now we have fabric, right? Um, but now... 20, 2019, four years, almost five years later, and we're all back to the same, you and I are both back to the same answer, which is the real answer for the enterprise, ironically, is the mainnet. Now, you have one approach. I've been talking a lot about, about using the mainnet as a message bus, and that's really going to be the story I'm going to be telling a lot for the rest of the year is, is that you know, enterprise message bus 
if you think about it, the Ethereum mainnet is, is a great solution for that problem. And it doesn't creep out, you know, the CEOs and the CTOs who are worried about their business logic getting onto the mainnet. But it allows interoperability to be safe without silos. So we're both in the same, we've, we've both come to the same conclusion, which is we went away from the mainnet or we went into these enterprise things and then we both came back to the mainnet. That's pretty interesting. Well, we were always, I always believed in the mainnet. And, and the, the problem was the lack of privacy. At the end of the day, the lack of privacy made the mainnet for some period of time a, a not an option. But you don't have to spend very long thinking about it to come to the conclusion that there is no alternative, right? And I, I like to tell the story. If, if you guys remember, like, you know, there are companies that we had this, this wave of stories, which I think to some degree is still going on about mangoes and food and pork on the blockchain, right? Now, think about the mango farmer, right? He gets a call from a very large supermarket chain and they say, would you like to join my blockchain? And the mango farmer's like, what's a blockchain? But sure, because at the end of the day, when your largest customer calls and says, would you like to join my blockchain? They're not asking, right? Or maybe the question is, would you care to continue to do business with me? So, you, yes, they get on the blockchain, right? But then their other customer calls and says, hey, can you join my blockchain? Right? Oh, and by the way, in order to ship your mangoes, I'm going to need you to join this other blockchain and another one for insurance and maybe a different one to get paid. And at a certain point, this mango farmer is going to say, you know what, guys? How about you fax me the order? Because <laughs> that works for everybody, right? And, and, and that's where, you know, and, and you talk to any client, and if you spend even five minutes thinking about it, you come to realize, like, that doesn't, that doesn't scale. Private blockchains, technically, people are like, Paul, that private blockchains scale wonderfully. No, organizationally, they do not scale. And by the way, industry consortia don't scale either. Car companies do not buy cars from each other. All right? Uh, supermarkets do not shop at each other's stores, right? Everything that we make, buy and consume, ultimately crosses multiple industry boundaries. So if I have a token that I can put on the blockchain and it represents a mango or a bottle of wine or a car, I can buy that token, I can sell that token, I can transfer it, lease it, uh, you know, uh, uh, borrow against it, uh, and I can, and if I can do that with privacy using zero knowledge proofs, I can do that in the full view of my competition on the same network. That is the only thing that scales. We came to the conclusion pretty quickly there was no alternative. Yeah, and those were the the three big talks I, I feel that uh, really solidified day one for me. Um, those are the ones that spoke to me when I when I heard them talking. Uh, those are the ones I feel like uh, y'all will get the most value from. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes for the Ethereal Summit stream. They've been streaming this whole thing. So if you're listening to this uh, Thursday night or Friday morning, head over to ethereal slash stream. You can watch the stream while you're, while you're you know, shopping or whatever you're doing. It can play in the background. It's really fascinating uh, to see where the state of Ethereum is at this point. Um, every time I attend uh, some of this stuff, I, I get even more bullish than I already am on just the whole ecosystem in general. 
Um, and it, it, it's starting it's starting to at least come to me where I'm starting to realize that uh, this stuff is moving really, really fast. And we have to <laughs> it almost feels like sometimes I I skip a day or two of news or, or just not looking at my email and not seeing these press releases. And, and I'm just like, wow, what is going on? I feel like it's been a month has passed. So, um, yeah, this stuff is moving really, really fast. And I, I feel like we're at a breakneck speed at this point. Um, eventually, this is just going to turn into what everybody just does. Uh, just web 3.0, right? Um, I also want to give a shout out to Sam Cassette. He's the chief strategy officer for Consensus. And uh, he did this whole, um, this whole beautiful kind of uh, innovation um, about evolving ourselves as a society with blockchain. It was magnificent. And I wish I could, you know, you know, play it for you right now and, and let you listen to it. But I really want you to go check out ethereumsummit.com slash stream and look for Evolving Ourselves with Blockchain featuring Sam Cassette. And he literally goes through where we started as human beings, you know, as cavemen. <laughs> he goes all the way through time. And uh, it, it was magnificent the way he kind of describes that the current institutions and the current uh, governments around the world are just not meeting the needs of the average human being these days and decentralization and blockchain is is going to change that whether they like it or not it was it was a great talk um i think that's all i got for day one of ethereal summit we're going to do day two tomorrow uh it's going to be a lot of fun there's going to be even more speakers and um we're going to try to get some interviews to do that as well too and then they're having a big old party tomorrow so that's going to be cool to check out um and then New York being in New York right now is just kind of <laughs> kind of a culture shock to me, I guess. Uh, I'm not used to so much noise. <laughs> I'm used to being in Austin where it's just like really quiet for the most part. Um, but like it's just, yeah, it's a totally different atmosphere for me. But I'm enjoying it. It's fun. Rolling with the punches. Okay, with that, let's get on to the end of the show.
gentlemen of the thriller crypto ethereal summit is dunsies thank you so much for listening and you know what i I never really noticed this but a lot of the values that uh decentralization has you know about openness and transparency and inclusion and diversity and responsibility i really follow those you know in my daily life uh it's no wonder why blockchain and the future crypto and uh, everything just kind of aligns with me I hope it aligns with you. Bye, Bitcoin. See you next time. This is the end of the show. You have been listening to Thriller Podcast with Par Gonzalez. Remember, Thriller Podcast is not financial advice. Everything Car said likely won't come true. It is up to you. Now go do your own research. Listen to other dudes that start their name with crypto, and not hard. And remember, buy Bitcoin and save the world, one Satoshi at a time. <laughs>